All right, in other words, you could imagine a situation in which, in a sense, the economic issues are fully suppressed and depoliticized and not up for debate. Mm -hmm. And in which the only things that are debated are cultural issues. I mean, we're not so far, so far away from that, are we? <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about two topics. The first thing is just how do we interpret the re revitalization of the left after October 7th? And maybe that's a weird way to put it, but what do you make of the protests around the world and the way in which the the left that we knew in like in Occupy and uh, in Black Lives Matter and the, the left that, you know, it, it appears every once in a while. What do you make of the fact that it's back? And then the other thing was, what is post-Marxism? And why would you ever say to kids, you're ready to embrace it? What is that about? Stop saying uh, that to people. Right. <laughs> right. So um, go ahead. All right. Yeah. So I'd actually like to start with something. Um, it's a it's an aphorism of Adorno's mm -hmm. that I think is very appropriate to what we're talking about in terms of the Israel-Palestine situation. Mm -hmm. So he wrote this um, as part of Minimum Moralia, and uh, it was put in, taken out, etc., in the different editions of, of the book, among several other aphorisms. And those were published by New Left Review in 1999, I think, under the title Messages in a Bottle. But anyway, this aphorism is called Legalities. Okay, so bear, bear with me while I read it. It's very good, though. Okay. So Adorno writes, what the Nazis did to Jews was unspeakable. Language has no word for it, since even mass murder would have sounded in the face of its planned systematic totality like something from the good old days of the serial killer. And yet a term needed to be found if the victims, in any case too many for their names to be recalled, were to be spared the curse of having no thoughts turned unto them. So in English, the concept of genocide was coined. But by being codified as set down in the International Declaration of Human Rights, the unspeakable was made, for the sake of protest, commensurable. By its elevation to a concept, its possibility is virtually recognized, an institution to be forbidden, rejected, discussed. One day negotiations may take place in the forum of the United Nations on whether some new atrocity comes under the heading of genocide, whether nations have a right to intervene, that they do not want to exercise in any case, and whether in view of the unforeseen difficulty of applying it in practice, the whole concept of genocide should be removed from the statutes. Soon afterwards, there are inside page headlines in journalese, East Turkestan Genocide Program Nears Completion. Okay, so that's written, um, you know, sometime between 1944 and 1947. So it's written, you know, as the allies are setting up the United Nations, um, which, by the way, the UN Security Council is based on the allies at the end of World War II. So the United States, the Soviet Union now uh, devolves onto Russia, China, England and France. Those are the Security Council members because they are the allies. They're indeed what they call themselves the United Nations, meaning the United Nations against the Axis powers, against the Nazis. And um, I love the fact that Adorno says, you know, the English had to invent a word. They invented this word genocide, you know. And um, again, you know, what's the use of this term to forbid something 
but really in recognition that it is going to happen again. So this is Adorno's response to never again, right? So if we were to say, um, you know, apart from the original Zionist project, that the state of Israel is based on the idea of never again. Well, of course, it's also based on the idea that it will happen again. You know, I looked up, I was tweeting uh, about the Israel-Palestine Palestine conflict, and one of the things I mentioned was that it is possible that the outcome of this conflict will be, according to UN def- the UN definition, a genocide. And if it happens, it will be the sixth genocide of the 21st century. Of the 21st so, century, of right? the Not 21st even, century. Even since 1945. <laughs> no, right? no. century. Right. Um, and I know that uh, you guys mentioned in the Sublation show this week that uh, Pakistan is getting ready to forcibly remove um, some million plus uh, Afghan people, people yeah. to Afghanistan. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as we talked about last time, um, the entire world is f- full of this stuff. Like the post-colonial world, the post-World War II world is full of this stuff. And, you know, it's everywhere. Um, and in, I, I, would, I would dare say that there is no country that has not had some kind of forced displacement, oppressed nation, genocidal policy against some group or other at some point. Right. Yeah. Well, after 1945, except for perhaps the United States. <laughs> after 1945, we yeah. did ours during the war. There was uh, the internment camps for the Japanese, which is a kind of forced uh, displacement. Oh, sure. Of course it is. Right. Yeah. And then there was, of course, the treatment of Native Americans before that. Before that, right. And and, 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 and slavery was a kind of displacement, you know, involved, a, it was a genocide as well, I think. Uh, people will claim that. Um, so, oh, of course they will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing is that the term is kind of meaningless. And that was Adorno's point at its inception. At the very coining of the term, it's meaningless. Well, it has a meaning, but it doesn't... Uh, Politically. It, has yeah, no it doesn't meaning. have a meaning politically, but it's like it it takes a lot of things as pre it, it has a pre preconditions which ensure that it will happen. That's the main thing. That's why it has a meaning. It's an like, acceptance. You know, the, the invention of the term is an acceptance that it will happen. In other words, by codifying right. a crime, you're mm-hmm. saying, well, of course it's going to continue to happen. So the other thing that I'll say about like war crimes. But this point it's worth pointing out yeah. that by UN by the UN definition. The 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 uh, refugee crisis that's happening in Pakistan is not a genocide, right? Because they are not indigenous to Pakistan. Yeah, you guys are talking about that, and I don't know. I don't know how that holds up in the end. I mean, I guess like according to the letter of the law, but again, it's meaningless because, as Adorno mm-hmm. points out, who's going to enforce this law? And so it's going to be debated in the United Nations, but nothing's ever going to really be done about it. In other words, it's. It's going to be, I mean, I was talking with Spencer Leonard about this, about the United mm-hmm. Nations mm-hmm. and about how the United Nations was on site with, you know, special UN observers, special rapporteurs from the United Nations. They've been on site for every atrocity after World War II. In other words, they've dutifully recorded, documented, collected the evidence on every single atrocity, except for perhaps those that took place behind the Iron Curtain and in communist China today. 
and in other mm -hmm. communist countries. But everywhere else, they've been on site for every atrocity dutifully recording it. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's meant nothing. And often there have been peacekeeping troops there standing aside as the atrocity occurs. Right? Because the issue now is what's going to happen to Gaza after Hamas. Well, let's say the United Nations occupies it. Do you, does that going to prevent any atrocity? No. Do you think there will be an after Hamas? Oh, in the in the near term. Yeah, of course. Hamas is not going to be wiped out to the very last person. I mean, Al Qaeda has not been, and neither is ISIS. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but will they be removed from governing authority in Gaza? Yes, of course they will. Israel will, su will succeed. Of course they will. Okay. Like, let's All just right. jump to the end of the story. Israel is going to succeed. Okay, because Mearsheimer said that he didn't think it would be possible for Israel to succeed in uh, defeating Depends Hamas. On what you defend, what you, how you define success, right? So he's saying they've set themselves an impossible goal. Now, here's another myth that the left buys into, but that mm -hmm. also has some currency in mainstream capitalist political discourse. The myth is that counterinsurgencies always fail. That's not true at all. Most counterinsurgencies succeed. The vast majority of counterinsurgencies have succeeded. So this idea, especially after the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. that counterinsurgencies fail, no. And indeed, the um, the war that's close, most closely analogous to Vietnam for the United States is the Korean War, which mm -hmm. ended in a stalemate, but was successful as a counterinsurgency, at least in the South. So what most people don't understand is that the U.S. was fighting against the communists throughout the entire Korean peninsula. And mm -hmm. they were able to suppress the communists in the South completely, successfully. Mm -hmm. So it succeeds. And of course, you know, my partner is Malaysian and Malaysia had what's called the emergency. That was a communist insurgency, very much on the pattern of Korea and Vietnam. Namely, these were the anti-Japanese communist-led resistance movement that, of course, didn't want to hand power back to the old authorities, the British colonial authorities after World War II, just as the Vietnamese communists didn't want to hand power back to the French after World War II. And mm -hmm. Korea, you know, wanted to proceed to, you know, establish a people's republic under the communists. So, but uh, they suppressed, you know, the communists in Malaysia. It was a bloody counterinsurgency that took some time, but they succeeded. Mm hmm Right. Um, so, that's, you know, this it's. it's so do you think that the PLO are, will be tasked with managing Gaza by? The, uh, I mean, maybe the, they might try that. Um, there are different things. Uh, I saw that breaking points. Is it breaking points with Crystal and mm -hmm. Segar? Mm -hmm. You know, they were talking about how there's like a leaked memo about there's a plan for the United States to occupy Gaza. Uh, that sounds unlikely to me, but it's very much possible. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this was like, no, I know it's not, it's not impossible. It just, that would mean committing U.S. troops yeah. into Gaza. Mm -hmm. But um, I think See, that this, would be this politically. Idea, this idea that people have though, right. That like, you know, that either the Israelis have, or the pro-Palestinian people have, so-called pro-Palestinian. Mm -hmm. I actually don't want to concede that point. Right. 
um, that, you know, under every rock in the rubble, under every chunk of concrete, there's a resistance fighter right, waiting to take out the Israeli soldier or the American soldier or whatever, whatever people's fantasy is. That's not the situation at all. And also, the it's not like the entirety of Gaza is just like Manhattan block after block of dense urban space. There's rural space in Gaza. There are empty tracts of land in Gaza. You know, this, the, the notion of the geography of the place is also very screwed up. Right, no, it's like... Yeah, it, I just envision it as like exactly as you described it. It's no. like Manhattan. No, it's not at all. No, pressed no. up against you know no. maybe the size no. of like three city blocks across, yeah. and then even even Gaza City itself is not like Manhattan. Right, right. You know, meaning it's a low-rise city. Right, right. So you know this all this kind of like language that people use. One of the most densely the open air. Open air prison. Well, open air prison is maybe a different concept. I mean, you know that Horkheimer and Adorno, speaking of, of them. So around the same time that Adorno was writing Minimum Moralia, that he wrote that aphorism, he and Horkheimer were writing Dialectic of Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And they said that in late capitalism, the entire earth is an open air prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, that's the truth. In other words, that's before GPS satellites. Right. Right. But it's the truth. And what they said is, you know, the big game animals in, in, in the African wilderness, you know, mm-hmm. are being cleared to create space for the bombers to have landing strips during the war. And, you know, these animals will only exist because humans choose to preserve them. Right. Meaning mm-hmm. nature has become one giant zoo. Right. One giant zoological exhibit. And, and the earth has become one giant open air prison for humanity. Okay. Now, right. So it's a figure of speech, right? When people say this about Gaza and, um, you know, and I get it and there's a point to it. I mean, the point is that the condition of, of Gaza, um, you know, the, the siege, we might say, uh, since Hamas take the takeover by Israel, but also by Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just Israel, it's Egypt too. Um, that, of course, this is bad and to be opposed. But again, the issue is not, are things bad? Are they to be opposed? The question is, who is going to oppose them? How and for what end? Right. That's the point. Like, the point is not, oh, what the Israelis do is fine. No, no. Of course not. No, absolutely (laughs) not. No, 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 no. Right? Like, this is absurd. The question is, how are you going to oppose it? And towards what end? What is the point? Mm -hmm. What is the purpose? Right? So, like, you know, we have this kind of resistance kind of notion. Resistance assumes that it's going to stay. What you're resisting is just going to be there. It's going to remain. There is no transformational perspective on it. And I want to say something about the protests, right? So the protests, yeah. the um, Palestinian solidarity protests, let's just call them that, rather than pro-Hamas protests, which is what Fox News calls them, because of course they're yeah, not. Yeah, no, they're not that. I mean, they are that to an important degree, especially as far, as far as the left is concerned. They are. They are. The left does support Hamas. 
Totally. Yeah, you know what? I want to I, I want to stop there for just a moment and make a comment, which is that after 9/11, I was part of the peace movement early days, uh, opposing the attacks on Afghanistan and and opposing right. later on the invasion of Iraq. Right. And I was accused of being pro-Taliban. And by a lot of people, you're not with uh, the United States, you're with the terrorists. And um what I yeah. would have said what I said at the time was, listen, you need to understand that the Taliban are absolutely everything that the United States says about them. That's all true. It's a terrible terrorist, regressive fascist organization, let's say. But if you read the statement from uh, Osama bin Laden, right. you can see that there are these problems that the United States has participated in creating that we need to address as Americans, that we need to, to, to do something about. So like, and what was the first thing on his list of complaints? It was oh, the Palestinian, right. So opportunism, though. Right. It's not like solving the Palestinian problem is going to get rid of Islamism or Islamist terrorism. It will not. Well, no, at the time, though, I thought that was the case. I mean, I basically yeah. believe that was the yeah. case. I was like, you know, if we can end the occupation of Palestine. And then I thought uh, is uh, uh, assert pressure on our allies in the region to become more democratic and bourgeois and to liberate the people there. But there's a reason why these countries are the way they are, right? So there's a question of like, you know, the Abraham Accords and, you know, Israel and uh, rapprochement with the various Arab Gulf states and then maybe expanded to, you know, because Israel still already has normalization with Jordan and Egypt, but expanding it to Saudi Arabia, which is a major player. And, you know, this kind of idea of like, well, these these countries are not responsive to their own population. They're not representative. They're not liberal democracies the way Israel is. Yeah, you know, the question is how much of a liberal democracy is Israel? Less and less all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's not about, though, this or that policy. It really is not. Like, in other words, it's not like, oh, the U.S. was a liberal democracy until Donald Trump was elected. Or until no. Biden implemented some whatever with the deep state and the, the yeah, right. social media. No, no, no. Or until the Patriot Act passed. Right. You know, no, from, it's not, right? We don't want to make that claim. And so the question is, why are countries as they are? And mm -hmm. there are historical, social, and political conditions. And those things can vary, can be changed, right? It doesn't have to, like, just be simply the way it is. Like, you know, the Saudi monarchy, you know, probably Saudi Arabia would be some other kind of dictatorship if it wasn't a monarchy. You know, Egypt had the Arab Spring. There was a democratic revolution, but it's back to being what it was, you know, which is basically right. an authoritarian military dictatorship, but with some like republic trappings, right? Um, and, you know, that is a reality, you know. So the question is really simply one of um, what are the conditions for organizing? So, you know, Egypt, for example, very repressive place. However, the Muslim Brotherhood was able to organize over the decades into a major force, into not just a political party, but a social movement. They were. Mm -hmm. Now, that's lacking in Saudi Arabia, for whatever reason. In other words, you can think about this. You can say, okay, well, in Israel, there's, like, opposition. 
there's serious opposition to certainly Netanyahu and his governments and their co that coalition, their policies, their politics. Um, but there's also more fundamental, like there are anti-Zionist citizens of Israel who are not just Arab Israelis or something like that, right? There are Jewish no, right. oh, sure. Absolutely. of Israel. There is a left in Israel. There's a there left is. that is anti-Zionist, right? Well, you, so, I don't think you, I don't think you can be an eth, you know, for an ethno state and really be on yeah. the left. That's my, you know. I mean, you can be a opinion. social democrat. I mean, it depends on what you mean, right? So, in other words, mm -hmm. certainly, it's kind of like, you know, people would say Jeremy Corbyn is a member of the left. Right. I mean, maybe Bernie Sanders has had his leftist card revoked because he said lately. Fire. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, but again, it, let's say that he said ceasefire, then suddenly Bernie Sanders is a leftist. No. Well, I mean, the question is, but, but Bernie Sanders isn't for turning the United States into a, you know, religious ethno state on any level. Right. Well, Nobody is in mainstream politics. Nobody. There's no, of course. Zero. Well, not I mean, here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, but okay. But the ethno state, you know, so, you know, and I know people have taken issue with me saying, you know, countries are blood and soil nation states in a way that the United States is not. So it's not like Israel is uniquely so. Right. Not uniquely so. What it is, is it's a relatively recently established one, seemingly established by white people. But that's a misnomer, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then has this basically what we've inherited is a Cold War situation. But a Cold War situation that was not so straightforward, meaning it's only really after 1956 and even a great deal later than that. It's more like the second Cold War of the Reagan years in which Israel is like a solid Cold War ally of the West. And it was a proxy war. The Israel-Palestine dispute was a proxy war between the Soviet Union and the United States, between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. It was, that's what it was. And it was supposed to be solved at the same time as Northern Ireland, another proxy conflict and apartheid South Africa, which also became an, a proxy conflict. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, why did it work in Northern Ireland and in South Africa? South, the South African case is interesting, right? Because South Africa has problems. Well, I just spoke to Zizek. Uh -huh. And one of the things he said was that when he, recently he spoke to some South African leftists at a mm -hmm. conference, and he asked them, is it true that South Africa is really approaching the level of a failed state? Is it as bad as the Western media tells us? And they said, let us tell you how bad it is. Oh, yeah. Amongst the the, the regular, everyday people, um, there, is become, there is now a, a pervasive nostalgia for apartheid. <laughs> that is how bad it is. In well, maybe. I mean, the other thing is well, that but not because they want to go back to those. No, 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 exactly. But the because right. because at least under apartheid, it was a police state so that there was order and this, you know, you weren't going to be suffering from as much crime. That's what Zizek said. I mean, the township. That's what Zizek related yeah. from these. Yeah, that's what know, he relayed. I mean, it's it's a curious thing. I mean, the real question is. Again, what we're talking about is there was a particular conflict, namely the apartheid mm -hmm. state 
and the opposition to the apartheid state by the Triple Alliance, the ANC, COTU, and the South African Communist Party. So the Congress of South African Trade Unions, COSATU, the ANC African National Congress, and the Communist Party of South Africa. And there were overlaps among those three, but there were the, three. The people who told them this were part of the ANC. Right. Okay. And, you know, I would just say, you know, they had a definite goal, that that alliance had a goal to overthrow apartheid. Right. Right? Their goal was not socialist revolution. Their goal was overthrowing apartheid. But insofar as that struggle was taking place in the context of the Cold War, the United States considered it a liability to allow the ANC-led alliance to come to power in South Africa. You know, and they fought proxy wars outside of South Africa in, well, Namibia, Southwest Africa, with SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization, and in Angola, which was a three-way war between Moscow communists, Maoists, and Americans, and then the Americans and the and the Maoists or the pro-China people lined up against the pro-Soviet people. Mozambique, something similar happened. Um, you know, the so-called frontline states. Um, Zimbabwe, of course, ex-Rhodesia, where you had a guerrilla movement uh, that uh, was supported by the Soviet Union that actually came to power, right? So Rhodesia became Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe, who is the motherfucker he is, right? And, you know, again, that's not a happy story either. So the idea is, you know, what are we actually talking about, you know, in this instance, what kind of resolution and, you know, the two state, one state stuff, you know, it's and a right of return. And I think that I mentioned in our last discussion, right of return means some rich Palestinians get to buy land in Israel. That's what it people means. were very uh, opposed to that, saying that you were completely wrong. But there's some comments saying no, no, no. Yeah, I know, um, they're, they're idiots. They're, so they, they fall for the rhetoric. They don't understand the reality of life, namely capitalism. Hello, that's what I'm here <laughs> right. to talk about. I mean, there are all these thousands capitalism. and millions of people who own titles that would, you know, allow them to come to the yeah, ancestors of people. They're going to sell those titles to rich Palestinians in order to get the cash and stay in the West. I mean, it's like if reparations happen in the United States right? or slavery, what would happen? All that money would be collected by bankers and oh, real right. estate developers. In other words, it's not like you'd have suddenly, you know, however many million millionaires. No, I mean, the you know, capitalism, it doesn't work like this. You know, it just right, doesn't you know. work like this. Um, and so it would be, a you know, a, a, you know, a cash windfall day for some middle class black people. But everyone else would basically be in a situation of, um, you know, where what those reparations would amount to would be dependent on others who are above them socioeconomically. And, of course, above them all, the big, big capitalists who will remain, you know, the white people. So, you know, it, you know it's like, well, what are we talking about, right? What are we actually proposing here? And also, you know, fuck, fucking Hamas. Like, what is Hamas? doing what is hamas after what are what are they about and so instead there's this idea that like i mean for real people think oh well conditions must have been really bad in gaza for these people to come out and slaughter civilians the way they did 
And I know that that's denied too, right? It's like this, we're in this total gaslighting thing, right? Where it's kind of like, no, it didn't happen, but if it did happen, it's justified. Yeah, it's weird. Um, no, no, I mean, it's, well, it's totally, and by the way, this is Stalinism. This is the legacy of Stalinism. This is what the Stalinists and the Maoists did. Deny and say, and if it happened, it was justified. Right. I mean, that's they a, filmed that, that's fucking like, I didn't I, I haven't spent the you time know? to watch a lot of footage, but I my understanding is Hamas used GoPro cameras to document their own atrocities yeah, and released it on Facebook, you know, yeah, and that, and you can watch them. Yeah, and, I mean and, these things it, you know, there is there is there is a great deal of evidence, but again, it's it's we're being gaslit about it. But let's just go with okay, atrocities happen. And so for people to have committed these atrocities, they must have been very angry. And also people got upset with me when I said, no, they were on drugs. And then they were mm -hmm. like, oh, that's a racist stereotype. And I'm like, you know, American soldiers are on drugs, too. And they also yeah. do things like, you know, kill and rape people because they're on drugs. And, you know, UN peacekeeping forces also rape and slaughter civilians because they're also on drugs. Because they take meth or whatever to stay up late on patrol you know, that extra bit of energy. And especially when you're going into battle, the point of the matter is this is, you know, it can't be imputed that, oh, well, the atrocity is a measure of the anger of people in Gaza. Oh, no, obviously not. No, like That is absurd because I will just say this. Whatever these Hamas fighters did to Israelis, mm -hmm. They've done to Palestinians first. You think that any rape that took place, you think that this is the first person that they've ever raped? No. No. Do you think it's the first person they've tortured to death, killed in front of someone else? No. They're doing that in Gaza to the Palestinians, Hamas. They're doing that all the time. They're practiced at it. That's real. Right. They did it to the Palestinian Authority people when they took power. Right. right. So these are the people that you want to lead the Palestinians. Now, I have, uh, you know, my inner leftists just shrieking at me now saying this is this is Zionist propaganda to say this about the Hamas. But I mean, is and I don't I don't. But I just I have to say, I believe I'm just you. speaking. And I'm just speaking to this. You know, let's. I have no idea what the actual facts are. I don't. I'm not in a position. Well, look, I have look, some look, things I can surmise, but what I'm saying is... We can look at the conditions and know, okay? We can look at the fact that you've, you've got as an authoritarian regime in Gaza uh, managing the society under a massively repressive occupation, and the people in that society, for the most part, are relying on international aid just to survive. Okay, so you've got you don't have a self-sustaining working population, right? To a large extent, it's like 80 percent of the food stuff is coming from international aid. I read somewhere and maybe this is I'm overstating it, but the conditions are horrible. And the age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, the people who would run that. Oh, yeah, they're gangsters. The you know, they're going to be gangsters. They're going to be gangsters. And these Hamas fighters are just your gang members. Like, in other words, they are just exactly what you think they are in terms of people you know, people you have met, people that you've, you know, known in life, right? Yeah. That's, these. this is who it is. This is like the person who would beat you up, kill you, you know, like a thug. They're thugs. They are. 
I was about to say that the Israeli soldiers are not that too. Maybe, perhaps a lot of them. I'm not saying that. It's not about by you know. I'm just saying, and that, you know, and maybe you know, because I want to concede the red lib stuff, and the petty bourgeois radical stuff, and the liberals with bombs, and the liberals with guns. You know, like you could say, okay, well, any revolution, you're going to have people like that on the side of the revolution. Uh, mm -hmm. You really think that there were Bolsheviks like that? Not so much. No, no, no. I'm sorry, no. Right? There Why were, not? Uh, Why not, Chris? Why weren't it was they? a party-disciplined uh, Marxist socialist organization. They didn't and how were they they want criminals in their organization, right? And, they, and how were they able to organize those those people, those kinds of people, to be militant or oh, because be it's working fighters. class based, and it, the kinds of activity that they did before the revolution. The These are people who were already living under conditions of some self-sufficiency and independence and and interconnection, right? They were they not the it. most desperate lumpen people. They were not the something... most desperate lumpen people, but they also were. I mean, look, conditions in Tsarist Russia were not great. Right. Right. So, in other words, if you're going to chalk it up to conditions and brutality of a regime, you know, then it would justify what Lenin considered the terrorist road. No, I'm not justifying it. I'm no, just no, saying I know. that I'm just saying, like, in order to the, the if you want to create conditions for liberations, you 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 do not look to them like like the Marxist right. humanists. Right. They're trying to organize prisoners. Okay, right. they're going to prisons to organize the most oppressed. And I, my question to them is, why are you organizing people, organizing people who cannot be political, who are actually locked down? Oh, right, who are, who are not available. What? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, they and will so, get out presumably. So presumably, they're organizing people who are not the, you know, the most. They love the ones on death row the most, you know, like I, I, I you know, like <laughs> I'm just saying well, there's a lot um, of sentimentality. There's a lot of sentimentality. And I mean, it's not like I want to deny, you know, like Eugene Debs said, oh, you I know, know, I'm not better than the meanest creature on earth. And as long as, you know, a single person is in jail, I am one of them. Right. Like I am with the criminals. I am with the prisoners. I am with. Right. And, you know, that's great. But that's not the way he organized people. That's not how right. the Socialist Party that he was a leader of. That's not how they oriented. Towards their building their organization, and it really had nothing to do with the means. In other words, they didn't say, oh, I'm with the criminals and I'm with their way of doing things. And that's how we're going to achieve socialism. We're going to achieve socialism through gang-style action. No. I guess what I was trying to get at is if we want to help the Palestinians, one of the things we should do is try to help the Israeli left challenge the repression that's happening in Israel alongside of... the, And th that means starting also here to struggle against our own regime, uh, in common well, that cause. brings us back to the protests, right? And so right. I just feel like the protests are themselves an admission of defeat. Now, why is that? Well, the largest protests that ever took place were to stop the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen. Now, I'm not sure, but I think the immigration rights protests that came a few years later in 2006 were even bigger. And they didn't achieve... 
I don't think they were, but they might have been on the same scale. You're in the same ballpark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, I was. I look at the, with the with the anti-war protests against the invasion of Iraq. That if you were involved with that, you knew before it happened that yeah. there was a con, con, concession of defeat because two things: one, yeah. they were organizing to protest the war in Iraq a year before it happened. They were planning for what to do the day the bombs started falling on Baghdad a year ahead. Right, so they're <clears> expecting <throat> it to take place. Yeah, I mean, like, before, right. it, before it had been sold to the American public, it had already been sold to this left as yeah. a, a fait I mean, so again, it's then, the resistance. The second thing is that the yeah. name of the movement was not in our name. Uh-huh. So, you know, participating the action <laughs> yeah, that right. you're going to disclaim even before it takes place. Right, right so... Now, you and I, our generation, this is the culture we were raised on, meaning the 80s and 90s left was a protest demo left. And it was trying to keep the spirit of the 60s alive in the same way that I suppose now the Palestinian solidarity protests are trying to keep the spirit of the millennial left alive. But it was an admission that, no, it's over, right? And so you dutifully do your protest demos and, you know, you use extreme rhetoric and you carry on. And basically your goal is to create public pressure on the elected politicians, the people in office already, to not be quite as bad as they are. Right. Right. Um, and then, you know, usually hone to some discrete policy. So what I mentioned, ceasefire now. Right. And then everything becomes a kind of scale. So it's like Biden is proposing to Israel a humanitarian pause. Mm-hmm. Is that ceasefire now? No, no, because it's temporary. But but isn't it ceasefire now? Isn't it? And isn't Israel and the Republican pro-Israel people are there to say, a humanitarian pause is just to give a military advantage to Hamas. They're saying that American politicians, not just Israel, not just Netanyahu and his government. Mm -hmm. American politicians are saying you can't have a humanitarian pause because it will be endangering Israel and benefiting Hamas. Like three days is going to change the military situation. They claim, right? And it's just like, okay, so that's the realm that we're in. We're in this realm of like a spectrum of humanitarian pause to ceasefire now. No, there's more. Right? There's more beyond it. Okay. There's the left has another slogan. It's not as widely picked up, but it's defund Israel. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. Sure. And and, but what I noticed about that one, and I may have told you this before, is that the uh, Zionist hardliners also want the to end the funding of Israel by the United States. Oh, so there are no strings attached or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So they can be uh, unconstrained. Yeah. Can and, <laughs> right. They can be a rogue state. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm going to be interviewing um, Jacob Siegel, who is taking that position. Oh, um, he's very pro-Zionist. Oh. Yeah, he's a yeah he's a he's a Zionist. He's a, a pro-Israel type of guy. He works for a, a a very 
pro-Israel uh, Jewish magazine called Tablet. So Tablet, sure. Now, right. but, wait a second. <clears throat> but wait a second. Okay, so... I'm not trying to confuse the issue. I'm just saying there is, like, there's ceasefire, which I feel like, okay, fine. And then there's defund Israel, which I'm like, okay, now, now we're into the terrain where it's very clear, I think, that the aim is to create a position that won't be taken up. Uh, Maybe will, I mean it, you mean like an impossibilism. Yeah, like like deep like abolish the police or defund the police. Where you know, did that? It's where a lot did easier, that end up? It's a lot easier to defund Israel. It depends on what that means. So in other words, if U.S. government aid to Israel is cut, that's totally possible. That's completely right. possible. Now yeah. BDS is something else. Boycott, divest, sanction. That's something mm -hmm. else. In other words, divesting from Israel is impossible. It's impossible mm -hmm. because the global economy is such that you just it's impossible. Right. So that's an impossible demand. And and the part of the point of that kind of agitation is it's impossibility. I'm just saying in this immediate moment. So if defund the, Israel means that doesn't just mean U.S. Government. No, it doesn't mean that. I, okay. It means just stop providing military aid. No, that, that's quite possible. It's certainly possible. But the out. But that's why both. The far left United States and the Zionist right are calling for it, but what would the consequences of it be in this moment? To oh, consequences, consequences. I mean, it wouldn't change the fact that the U.S. and Israel are allies, and therefore the U.S. would be able to still exert pressure on Israel. It would. It doesn't. Right, need I know. To take this form. You don't think that you don't think it would take is you don't think Israel would be more likely to be brutal in, in their... private discussions right you know that the biden administration is trying to get the israeli government to, to do something else to right. not do what they're doing not even that at, private at, at no well but they have private secret yeah secret right, right. like on pain of charge of treason you can't reveal what the conversation is right okay okay private like that nobody is saying no american official is saying to any israeli official if you don't do what we ask, we're cutting your funding. Right. So they are exerting pressure. It doesn't, it doesn't mean what other people on the left are saying is, oh, well, it's just lip service. It's just face saving for the U.S. to pretend that they're putting pressure. No, the U.S. is opposed to the way Israel is handling things. It is yeah. putting pressure. But it doesn't have to take the form of money pressure or material, no. military material pressure. It doesn't have to. It really doesn't. So now there's the question of the wider regional war. In other words, deterrence, you know, in other words, that you might want to supply Israel, not for the Gaza operation, but to prevent Hezbollah or Iran from being tempted to take advantage of the situation. I mean, it's a complex calculus, we might say. But all that I'm saying is, uh, as far as I know, the... Germans and the French and even the British have their own military industrial complex and their own militaries and their own military budget. I don't think that they're allies of the U.S. because the U.S. funds their military. No, no. Right. That's no. Just, what, what the fuck? Are we no, talking? I know. But no. But right? my point is that, that, that it's not exactly my point is with by pointing out the hardliners and the far left want the same thing with defund. My point is that they want to take both, something off the negotiating table, I guess. You know, they want to like remove like something. It makes it makes more sense for an Israeli Zionist who wants to to. to I think want that you that. know what I think it really is, though, Doug. Mm. 
I think the people who are calling for that in the United States, Mm -hmm. they're trying to remove it as a political issue from American politics. It's not an international politics thing. It's rather, oh, well, you know, you can't complain about the Israel lobby if you cut funding by the U.S. government. It's that kind of calculation. It's basically saying we don't want to hear it. You know, we don't want to hear, oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, look at the undue influence of the Zionists on U.S. policy. Right. That's that's the calculus. The calculus. Well, I mean, it's not it's not just coming from Americans. I mean, it's coming from Netanyahu and sure. other far and right. He has, and he has aims in terms of domestic American politics, too. Of course, all countries, every country in the world has goals as far as American domestic politics is concerned. They lobby. Well, right? look, if you if if the United States were to stop funding is Israel's military, <clears throat> then the the amount of pressure that could be put down on the Israel's military actions would be diminished. Wouldn't be like we couldn't put pressure on them in other ways, but they would be diminished if we were to no longer be funding them militarily. Yeah, this like is that. a little bit more this uh, purely tactical on principle, though. What we're talking about, right? Like, okay, what yeah. Does the left want what are the demands? What is the point? What are these protests about? Well, like this, all I'm pointing out is the symbolic gesture of defund Israel might have the opposite consequence of what they're supposedly trying to. Well, get. possibly, yeah. I mean, but, and and the reason why true. I'm saying that is because that's the right wing Zionists, Israelis, yeah. are also calling to defund yeah. Israel for the and for the opposite reason. So, like you know, you want a minimum wage law to make sure the working class people get. Um, you know, uh, a, a living wage. Well, um, you know, actually it may have the opposite consequence. Yeah. It might create a, a ceiling rather right. than a floor. No, right. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's just in the nature of things. And of course people do need to think politically in a more sophisticated way than they do. Right. Um, you know, I want to mention that over the weekend, this past weekend, Trump complained in a speech, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, he felt betrayed by Netanyahu because he thought Netanyahu wanted peace, but clearly he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, he's been you know, saying something similar for a little while, right? He said he was very disappointed in Netanyahu and Netanyahu was a big people have tried to spin it as a personal matter because Netanyahu, you know, accepted the results of the U.S. election faster than AMLO in Mexico or something. Right. Right. right so right. it's like, you know, some friend of mine who didn't see that I actually won the election they try to spin it into that, but it's actually more substantial. And the substance of it is, is that I think that the Trump administration did want to succeed where the Obama administration failed in achieving some kind of a settlement and between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And, uh, you know, so this idea that somehow Biden's critical of Israel, but Trump was just pro-Israel to the hilt. That's also misunderstanding of things, and it's yeah, I, I would think so. What, I mean, isn't it, isn't it in the U, U.S. interest in general to at least try to have it both ways there, like not to be well, seen as um, we are a moderating force. We're going to try to n- negotiate some sort of coexistence. We don't ultimately care about um, you know granting Palestinians their full rights, but we don't want this 
brutal oppression to be an embarrassment for us on the world stage. So, and because we want to be able to deal with Saudi Arabia and and Iran even and you know and yeah, Egypt, yeah, yeah, right. Trump so because to Trump, Trump, Trump wants that, Biden wants that. Vivek Ramaswamy would want that. I mean, this um, is the thing about, okay, so in terms of the left and capitalist politics, right? Right. So getting back to the Adorno aphorism. Right, yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm sorry I, di I diverted you. I'll no, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. Okay, yeah. But, you know, capitalist politicians might, as human beings, at the level of sentimentality, want all good things for people. Right. But what they do is they basically accept, oh, it's a mean, bad world. You can't save everyone. And, you know, unfortunate things are going to happen. You know, in other words, to say they don't care about the Palestinians, they don't care about the Israelis. They don't care. Like you said, you know, do they really want Palestinians to enjoy their full rights? Do they want Americans to enjoy their full rights? <laughs> Not like <laughs> they do. They do. And, and yet they also can't can't afford to care too much about it. Because they accept it's impossibility. I think just to, I think you're right. And 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 but I would go further and say there are many people amongst the progressive ruling elite who would love for the American people to be educated enough to one day be responsible enough to have the rights that are guaranteed to them. Oh well, sure. No, they they actually do want to deny people their rights too. Right. But <laughs> no, they do in that sense. Of course they do. And that's, of course, even worse and awful. But I'm just saying, you know, it's not like the U.S. wants the genocide of the Palestinians. or the No. Palestinians. But the question, of course, they don't. And you could even say perhaps the Israelis generally don't either. Right. But the question is, you know, priorities. And then, you know, what what do you think is within the realm of possibility and what do you think is not? So, again, I'm back to like a kind of millennial left theme, which is why can't we have good things? And it's like nobody's against you having good things. But it's mm -hmm. understood that it's just not in the cards, you know? Like, it, so it's not like people are like, oh, socialism would mean good things for people and we don't want that. They don't think it's possible. If they thought it was possible, then you and I would not have to be talking about Marxism or anything else, right? In other words, if they thought it was possible, then they would do something about it and, you know, and then we'd be in socialism, I guess. I mean, I, you know that my actual belief, of course, is that you need the working class to actually do it. But, you know, what most people think of as socialism Mm -hmm. what they think of as socialism is perhaps something that could be implemented by a ruling bureaucracy, you know, Conrad Hamilton on China. Right? I will be running the United States after our Chinese overlords um, have their successful war. According to Conrad Hamilton, he's already handed yeah. you to the communist. Party. Well, this is a secret meeting. This is in a secret meeting that if I reveal it in public, I will be assassinated. So I, I shouldn't be speaking of it now. But but yes, that's right. <laughs> he did right? promise me the position. So Chairman, Chairman Doug. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyhow, well, no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, we have to understand why things are the way they are and what politics is really about, right? It's not like, oh, there are people who want bad things, like they want to kill brown people or something. That is not what we're talking about. It really is not. 
Yeah, I agree. Right. This is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is shit sucks. Conditions are bad. We can't do much about it. We save who we can. We do what's possible. And, you know, that's all you can expect. I mean, that's, you know, the well, look, there, political there, world. You know, I just before I talked to you, I, I was talking to Slavoj Žižek. And, you know, he's the king of talking about ideology, right? He mm -hmm. talks a lot about ideology. And the question is, like, what is the connection between the way things really are in some, you know, under capitalism and the way in which our ideology constrains our understanding so that it becomes more and more difficult to do anything about it. Um, do you well, think okay, that, so? the real issue is the ideology? And I think that right. and I, I will always refer back to my article on dogmatization and thought taboos, my first yeah. article for sublation, mm -hmm. which I said, well, what is the dogmatization and thought taboos that were, you know, what are we dealing with on the left? Meaning, um, what is the dogmatization of Marxism? Is it really a dogmatization of Marxism or is it something else? Is there some kind of a leftist dogma? And what's the thought taboo? And the thought taboo is that the dictatorship of the proletariat is impossible mm -hmm. and perhaps not even desirable because look at these people. A dictatorship of the proletariat would have to include all these Trump voters. No, you don't want that. Right. So really what they want is a technocracy. And really what they object to is the policies of their betters. Mm -hmm. Right. And the thing is that, you know, these millennials, you know, and, and Zoomers and they're in their uh, following in their footsteps when they are in charge, they will have to do the exact same thing that the older generations have had to do. They will discover, oh, it's not really possible to do things differently. Right. It's like the reference I make to Samantha Power. You know, uh, the Obama national security advisor who wanted to make big changes in American foreign policy. And she was like, oh, you know, I learned it's not really possible to make the changes we wanted to make. Right. right. And so this is what people will discover. They'll discover, well, socialism means a higher minimum wage and whatever. Right. That this, this mm -hmm. whole socialism thing that we thought of as young people, not possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's really the issue, I think, is that. There's a lot of there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of youthful, youthful naivete, but then there's also a lot of not really naivete and just demagogy and rhetoric, and also like I said, gaslighting. Meaning it's like okay, oh, a one-state solution and freedom from the river to the sea does not mean the extermination of all Jews, right, on the land of Palestine. But even if it did, we wouldn't exactly be against it. Right. And, um, you know, because settler colonialism and and because if, if you don't genocide them, then they will genocide us. Right. And it's kind of like, well, that's, you know, the, that's what the Nazis thought. I mean, they thought that the world was conspiring to exterminate the Germans. They thought that the Versailles Peace Treaty was the extermination of the German nation. Mm -hmm. And they thought, uh, well, you know, who's pulling the strings behind international capitalism? The Jews. And so mm -hmm. we have to kill them off. Otherwise, they're going to kill us off. I mean, they sincerely believed it. And they didn't think it was going to happen like tomorrow. They thought it was going to be a slow genocide. This is what people talk about. They thought it was a slow genocide of Native Americans, the slow genocide of blacks, the slow genocide of Palestinians. The slow genocide of white people. 
Yes, yeah, so they talk about that. White people <laughs> not the... <laughs> insanity, right? They yeah. Sort of, yeah, and you know, and so Hitler was like, you know, if we don't break out of this global order that's stacked against us, you know, that's going to be the slow extermination of the German people, right? And it's kind of like, and who cares? In other words, like my my response to that as a Marxist is first of all, that's not going to happen. But second of all, if that were to happen, like the slow dying off of the German culture, German language, German race, German genome in the, in hundreds of years, why should we care again? <laughs> right. no, seriously. You know, like in other words, if, if someone's told Look, me, I've experienced this in my lifetime. Okay. People who were famous and important and part of my central to my culture have been forgotten. Johnny Carson. It's as if he never existed. I am, I am being genocided right now. Like when people language, forget. No, but like a language, a religion. Oh, I know, I know. But I'm just know, like, my kind of slang, the slang of my time. No one says gone. those things anymore. But if, if someone were to tell me that in 300 years, there'd be no like Irish Celtic genes left on the face of the earth. It, well, I would not care. No. I, you know, like I yeah. do not care. And so, because that's not, that's not what we're talking about. And so again, it's this kind of racial paranoia that people have. I think that you had Ralph Leonard on who was talking about Zionism as being born of the same romantic nationalism of the 19th century mm-hmm. out of which Nazism came. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's, um, a kind of liberal version of this too. Um, you know, meaning, you know, this, this kind of like question of what do we mean by genocide? So I'll just say that also in the dialectic of enlightenment and also in another essay that Horkheimer wrote around the same time on the Jews in Europe, but in the dialectic of enlightenment, they said, well, the spirit of the Weltgeist might have dictated the annihilation of small nations, meaning mm-hmm. the Jews. And they were like, we have to go with that. Right. In other words, if the Weltgeist has dictated under capitalism, the annihilation of the small nations, the Jews in World War II, what are we going to what, what do we do about it, really? Right. And so it's not, you know, they never became Zionists. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, no. And, you know, Marxists weren't Zionists. You know, we talked about that last time. What kind of disaster right. would have had to have befallen humanity for the Zionist project to come to fruition? Well, it did. It did. The, the disaster did happen. And the disaster was not only the Holocaust. It was what happened in the East Bloc. It was the forced population transfers in the East. There were all sorts of things that happened that befell humanity, not just the Jews, to conspired to create the state of Israel and other such states because Israel is not that unique. It really is not. Mm -hmm. It's just simply not. And, you know, we're fooling ourselves. We're turning a blind eye to the entire world. If we claim that what's going on with Israel and Palestine is utterly unique, it is absolutely not. So, and, and is the U S implicated in things that are going on around the world? Absolutely. The Fox news people are there to tell you, how American corporations are complicit in the genocide of the Uyghurs in China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they right about that? They might have Probably. a case. They're, yeah, yeah, right? And so, like, but again, this is not the struggle for socialism. 
It really is not. And so, I mean, that's the point of like the Horkheimer Adorno stuff. In other words, like what the fuck is Adorno talking about? You know, that the, that the concept of genocide guarantees its continuation. Well, he's not saying that. He's saying capitalism is continuing. And the phenomenon of capitalism continuing is that we're going to have to create international laws that aren't enforced anyway about genocide. Mm-hmm. Right? That, and again, for political reasons. In other words, it's, it's really... And for ideological reasons. So you mentioned Zizek and the critique of ideology. Well, I know that what he means by ideology is somewhat different from what I would mean by ideology. I think so, yeah. But the basic contour... Yes, he has a kind of Althusserian take on ideology. Maybe, but... but and you're... But does the idea of ideology critique actually reside within the Frankfurt School tradition? Yeah. Or would it be called... Yeah. Yeah, so it's of course similar. it does. No, no, yeah. very much. It's very Marx, and that's why they're the Hegelian Marxists, because after all, right. ideology. But it's called ideology. It's not called a critique of reification or alienation. No, it's ideology. Yeah. Everything's yeah. ideology. Music is ideology. Right. Psychoanalysis is ideology. I probably knew this already and forgot. Yeah. But anyhow, I mean, you know. Um, so it's you know it's um. <sighs> I mean, nationalism is ideology, obviously. Sure. Yeah. But it's it's more than mere ideology. It's also a constituted political force in the world. Right. And socialists have never been pro-nationalist. Never. Not not like real, authentic, original Marxist socialists like Lenin. Like Lenin. I know that like Kevin Anderson, Marxist humanist, will say, "Oh well, Lenin was good on the national question." Well, not, 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 not what Kevin Anderson thinks, meaning at no point was there an endorsement of nationalism. Never. Right. And not even for national liberation per se. It was freedom right. from national oppression understood that the only way that will actually be achieved is achieving socialism. Right. Meaning there is no emancipation from national oppression under capitalism. There isn't. And again, people are going to be like, oh, it's easy for you to say, Catrone, you know, white guy living in the United States. But meanwhile, genocide is happening right, right in front of our eyes. A, a little while ago, I got I kind of got heated because I wanted to make this really small point about uh, defunding and all that. And, but I think what the source of my frustration in that moment was, was actually that I wanted to point out how a particular claim to be able to solve the problem needed to be rethought but i was remaining within the realm of we need to solve this problem right now with what is available to us what the the problem is being defined as right so there are problems and there are problems and could the plight of the palestinians be a lot less bad than it is now yes right i mean surely right and again what I mentioned last time, which is the military transaction, it's all a negotiation and including people that you're not going to negotiate with and whose role in the negotiation is to be exterminated. Meaning, you know, they, they, they do what they do, you know, and then their action has an effect and they themselves are not the beneficiaries of that action in the end, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so, you know, it's, I think that it's, 
really questionable to claim that objectively Hamas is contributing to the emancipation of the Palestinians. Oh yeah. That's that, but that is the claim. And I'm not dismissing it per like just out of hand. Right. I guess I'm wanting to move beyond it too quickly or something. Because it we seems to know, me we have enough historical background to know, first of all, that this is not going to resolve the Israel-Palestine problem. The current crisis is not. No. A. No. B. We know from Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the Arab Spring. We know from mm-hmm. the Lebanese Civil War. We know from the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Mm-hmm. We know this is not a step of progress. That's on the table here. So, you know, and we know that the left goes along with it. We know that the left, for instance, the international left, some significant portion of it, had a positive orientation towards the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. Right? As, like, progressive. Like, oh, no, they're not leftists, they're not socialists, but they're progressive. I mean, you guys touched on the Judith Butler, where Judith Butler's like, us are freedom fighters. And um, she said that a while ago. Yeah, 2006. But I'm sure that she still believes it. She's Lately, she had to back off because the violence was so awful. She's like, oh, I condemn that. Well, yeah, but again, but objectively, right, Mm -hmm. are they contributing to the struggle? And again, that's where I want to say, well, what struggle are we talking about? We're talking about struggle for justice within capitalism. Well, I mean, depending on how you define that. that Well, yeah, I mean, for Christ's sake, I mean, like, that's a really dead end struggle. I wouldn't I don't want to be a part of that shit, you know, like figuring out who, who, you know, it's a constant to my way of thinking. It's a constant tit for tat back and forth bloody mess and yet there are resolutions like i said i mean in other words you don't have the bloody tit for tat indefinitely in northern ireland or in south africa no no it's replaced by perhaps other things i mean south africa in other words it's no longer a and b cosa to communist party and their allies in the frontline states around south africa against the apartheid you know uh, National Party, I guess they were the 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 Boer, the Afrikaners. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's no longer configured just that way, right? And so that that conflict was resolved. It yeah. was now now. Is there another conflict to take its place? I mean, I want to say this, you know, about peace also, peace and you know, war and peace, ceasefire, humanitarian pause, blah blah blah. Um, of course, the left isn't necessarily on the side of peace, meaning socialism is a goal of peace. But in the meantime, right, so I was remembering like an old slogan, no war but class war. Yeah, that's been no war but class war. Right. So neither Israel nor Hamas are conducting a class war at all, let alone a proletarian socialist class war. So no war but class war. It why can't we be there? Can we be there for a second? Just for a second, can we be there? Because mm-hmm. when you realize it formulate just like that, then people are like, no, national liberation. That's a different war. 
that's a different thing, right? So leave Marxism and socialism out of it. Leave leftism out of it. Right. Right. That's not left. That's whatever. And, you know, I mean, the point of the matter is, is that, you know, you can, you can resolve some conflicts. You can, uh, at least for the parties in the conflict, achieve some kind of resolution that appears to be a just end to the struggle. Mm -hmm. That is possible under capitalism. Of course, from a Marxist perspective, that is just saying that you can rearrange things within capitalism. Look, prosecutors can. sometimes put really bad people in prison. They do. Doesn't that doesn't make me want to be a prosecutor, you know? Well, you might want to be a prosecutor if uh I don't know, like I don't know. There are, you know, I it's not like in some alternate timeline, Chris Catron would never have been a social justice prosecutor. Right? If well, okay, were, but as a socialist, I don't want to be a prosecutor. Right. I'm not, well, or I'm a socialist, like a DSA socialist. And then I might want to be, you know, a, um, what's his name? Uh, who was the San Francisco guy who was, uh, recalled? Oh, I don't know. How about just say Kamala Harris? There's a progressive prosecutor for you. Yeah, but she was never like a socialist or anything like that. Um, no, her father guy, was, she was a red diaper. The guy baby, who was so. the, um, the child of, um, the weather. San under Francisco. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Uh, Bodine. I'll look him up. You know what I'm talking about. I do kind of. Um, He's already been memory hold. It's already just, yeah, it's just been erased. So, but, but you but know, in, in other words, if I had said "fuck this Marxism," what are we talking about? And I guess we're going to talk about that in the second half. Yeah, we are. Yeah, and and right. I I want to talk about post-Marxism and and try to take you to task, but then shut up more in the second half. Um, I feel like I am embodying this sort of frustration in this conversation with feeling like we can't, that the left doesn't have a role right now. And like, I want to, I want to say, oh no, we might have to admit it. Otherwise, you know, I was, um, I think people think that it's good for the left, that this pro-Palestinian sentiment exists and that young people are willing to protest and get out in the street and get agitated. I think people think that that is some kind of reanimation of the left. I don't think so. Again, it's very much in the, in the way that black lives matter. I don't think was ever leftist. It wasn't. And right. so, or socialist, even though they, they themselves did claim to be Marxist and whatever, right. A communist even. And so, you know, which I mean, I guess means some kind of socialist, doesn't it? And so uh, I myself would say, no, that's just your typical rad lib stuff. And they can call themselves whatever they want. But in, in reality, it's rad lib. And so it doesn't point to, um, again, what the millennial left did aspire to, which is an independent socialist left, not a pressure tactic within and on the Democratic Party. They actually did right. have an aspiration beyond that. It's easy for us to forget. Yeah, we did. I just would say that the people who want, who are calling for defunding Israel and claiming that Hamas is the cutting edge of the Palestinian resistance to capitalist empire, <clears throat> do not think that they are trying to put pressure on the Democrats. 
Don't they, though? Oh, don't they want to be the progressives in the Democratic Party? Isn't it about the squad versus Biden? Isn't that the point of the whole thing? I guess so. I guess so. But they don't say it outright. Don't they, and- don't they think that in 10 or 20 years, there won't be six, seven, eight squad members? There'll be like 50, 100, 200 squad members. Isn't that the why goal? Would they, why would they think that? I mean, that's insane. Because they live in blue cities and blue states and they live in a, in a media bubble and they, you know, just think back to the 80s. Yeah. Right? The mm-hmm. resistance to Reagan. The anti-apartheid South Africa solidarity boycott, divest, sanction. Right? Yeah. The Central American solidarity movement. Didn't they think that the point of it is to elect more progressive Democrats over a period of time until finally. Yeah, but not once you, like, I just, when I turned 20, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I became an anarchist. And even though I was probably still mostly when push came to shove in the final moment a Democrat, I didn't think that my aim was to change the Democratic Party. You know, well, where are the anarchists now? I feel like the Palestinian uh, pro-Palestinian pro- protesters are not anarchists. No, they really are not. They're right. saying things like Biden needs to listen to us, or we won't vote for him, and he'll lose the election. Okay. They are He's saying, probably going to lose the election anyway. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, you know, don't um, don't underestimate Trump's ability to fuck things up. Even right. though, even though, you know, um, you know, what I'll say about that is that even though Trump seems to be, you know, the pro-Israel, hardline, pro-Zionist, something or other, uh, perhaps he'd have better luck twisting the Israeli's arm than Biden can. Maybe. I, I don't I mean, know. I really think so. I yeah. really do because I, I, I think I, that, I don't think it will be an elect an elect. I don't think it will be an issue in the election. Well, it may not be, but you know, this is a perennial issue. Mm-hmm. And so, again, don't don't imagine because that's what people imagine. They imagine the Democrats are going to be more critical, more oppositional, and therefore more effective at changing Israeli policy. That's not the way these things work. No, I know. Like, there's no reason to assume that Republicans wouldn't have greater leverage over Israeli policy than the Democrats do. There's no, absolutely no reason to assume that. Yeah, that's even that's old true. style Republicans. Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, who knows? I mean, but the, but look, by the time it comes, it's around, easier for conservatives to make changes in capitalist policy because no one suspects them of either gross incompetence, over idealism, or ulterior motives. The way Except they, they suspected Trump of all of that shit. But what I'm saying is they, meaning like the powers that be, mm. the status quo, powers that be, the ruling class, the bureaucracy, the corporations, like they might be like, oh yeah, progressives, you know, sounds like they're calling for things that you know are reasonable, but you know, they might be full of shit, they might be incompetent, and they might have ulterior motives. Oh, let me Whereas, ask you this. It comes from people who are avowed conservatives. It's like, eh, do we want this reform or not? Well, at least we we know that this is, you know, that's kind of on the level, you know? Whereas the progressives can always be, you know, 
I mean, again, if you look at the last like 80 years since the New Deal, post-World War II, like Germany was run by the Christian Democrats for a long time before the SPD was anywhere near coming to power. And they implemented the whole welfare state thing. They did it. Mm-hmm. Right? De Gaulle did the whole French welfare state 30 glorious years. He did that. Sure. Right? And, you know, FDR was a patrician who came from a family that was basically Republican. And so, you know, it's kind of like you can trust, you know, like as opposed to these wild-eyed, demagogic, you know, you're not sure. Right. Right. Well, Biden is hardly that. I mean, you know, he's hardly a wild-eyed demagogue. Um, No, uh, I'm just saying that it's like people can say that Biden is succumbing to pressure from mm. the squad. You know, no one's going to say... If, if Trump, let's say Trump were president and mm-hmm. the squad is still there mm-hmm. and Trump is putting more pressure on Israel than Biden can, can do. No one's going to mm-hmm. say, oh, he's giving in to the protesters on the street. He's no, giving that's in right. to the squad. No, they would say the Steve Bannon, not, you know isolationist populist or they would simply deny they would simply deny right they would say it's isolationism it's this and that or they would simply deny that it was happening that's the other thing you know the the progressives so again i think that we have it fundamentally all wrong the idea that uh that there is first of all progressivism in capitalism a that's a mistake there's just a rearrangement of the deck chairs on the titanic that's all that there is. And yes, it can help some people and whatever, right? But usually it's, it's at a Yeah, cost. sometimes a chair gets brought over to your section of the boat. Right. And it's nice. And you get to sit down for a while. For a while, <laughs> right. And yeah, right yeah. before you're part of the ship goes underwater. <laughs> yeah, so, right. um, you know, so it's not, but again, progressivism. And then the idea that there's like some kind of a steady progress. And, you know, there are setbacks, but basically there's a kind of line of progress and we're, we're pursuing it. And without recognizing, well, wait, no, what was progressive is conservative and becomes conservative, becomes a new status quo. And it also isn't exactly what it's billed to be. And it has all sorts of, you know, to use the right wing concept, unintended consequences at the level of worsening social conditions, despite intending to do otherwise in the long term, but also in the short term, but in the long term. And so again, it's kind of like, you know, you could say, again, thinking of what the long game is and thinking that the roles that political actors play, what is Netanyahu's long game? What's the role that he's and his government is playing? What is Hamas's long game? You know, what's the goal that they claim to be pursuing, but what's the role that they're actually playing, right? Because maybe the result of their action is not to institute a Muslim theocracy. Maybe it's to achieve a secular one state. And, you know, I just, I, I really have a hard time thinking that what's going to happen is in 10 or 20 years, you're going to have a secular unified state in which everyone lives happily together 
and in which people look back and say, oh, yeah, that October 7th, 2023 attack, that was an important milestone in our struggle for freedom. All you have to do to discredit that idea is look back 10 or 20 years. I mean, you know, like and realize how short a time 10 or 20 years really is. It really and, is. Yeah. Um, you know, so I just think that it's not going to play out like that. The historical analogies to other struggles that took place in the past don't they're really not applicable it's really a slander against the people who struggled in the past you know yeah what do you think about the um comparison to the slave revolts yeah it's a slander in other words like i mean i was never i'll just say i'm never a fan of the nat turner rebellion i was never a fan i was like yeah you know he was some crazy religious nut john brown i'm a little bit more um, amenable to although he is also a kind of crazy christian millenarian and probably a nut also and you know i just think well it's got to come down to really um what was you know because you could say okay and because i think the argument goes something like this the Turner rebellion like generated a lot of sympathy but it also generated a great deal of repression it's sharpened the issue and you know john brown the raid on harper's ferry is of course a lot closer to the civil war right Mm -hmm. and so can be seen as some kind of you know and he's he's um suppressed and arrested by robert e lee himself Mm -hmm. right the confederate general um before before the confederacy um and so but again i kind of feel like well but that's leaving aside the whole realm of politics meaning that there were abolitionists there was frederick Douglass, and he didn't want to do what john brown did right he considered it he met with john brown he you know and he said no that's not the way to do it you know in the same way and, you know even though he give honor to john brown but again what john brown did is not what we're talking about it's not what hamas what the hamas attack was it was not and you know that's a slander against john brown it really is and you know again it's kind of like lenin and his brother was you know a terrorist and was involved in a conspiracy to kill the czar that failed miserably, but the brother was executed anyway. And, you know, and Lenin's entire political career was about fighting against that tactic, that strategy, and fighting for an entirely different way of changing society and and a different form of politics altogether. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, does that mean that he thought that the czarist state was right to execute his brother? No. Right. But that's not the point. Like the point is not, Oh, if you can, you know, it's not like that. It really like this right. doesn't absolve the Israelis, the government right. at all. It, it has nothing to do right. with any of that to just say, you know, because again, we're not in Israel, Palestine. We're not. No, you and I are not. Our viewers are not. Maybe some of them are, but generally speaking, not. And so when we romanticize, when we exoticize, when we, you know, want to take the Mau Mau oath. This is not what we're doing. This is not what we're about. And so there's something unseemly about the idea. That. 
Palestinians have to die to help my miserable Democratic Party progressive politics here. There's just something really grotesque about that. And that's what we're dealing with, really. Right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what it amounts to. Right. It amounts to I can't vote for Joe Biden unless he calls for a ceasefire now. Okay. I can't feel good about myself unless I make my opposition to the genocide that's happening right now, my opposition, my protest against it known, and the people hear me and respect me enough to pay lip service Right. And I just feel like this, this is not the left. This is not socialism. This is not what it was supposed to be. This was not just recently. This is not what the millennials started out trying to do. It's certainly. Although, look, okay, let's talk in the second half, but I'll just say they did come out of a movement. I mean, they were later than I was, but the beginning of that anti-war movement, which they were a part of, was, you know, start off, not in my name. It was conceding. It was already completely captured by... Yeah, I mean, it was, it was It was petty bourgeois democracy. It was petty bourgeois radicalism. It was. It was hysteric liberalism. It was. Anti-Bush. Um, it was anti-Bush, total. Like, it was very anti-Republican party. Um, you know, in other words, pro-Democratic party, in, mm -hmm. in fact. But, but w what I recall is that they had a deeper insight into the nature of society and politics given to them by the war. Now the deeper insight is not into capitalism, however one defines that, and the need for socialism, however one defines that. Now it's the deep insight into racist, settler, colonial, genocidal imperialism. And that is just not the object. In other words... It really, like, in other words, I remember when anti-imperialism in the war on terror, terror era mm -hmm. meant something. Other, I mean, it was there. It was in the mix. Some kind of, like, racialized, you know, like, good people killing brown people, Christian crusaders against Muslims. But it, I remember the serious people. The the leadership people in the young people who who were putting themselves forward, the new students for a democratic society, they wanted something other than this kind of racialized cosmic justice imagination, right? That seems to to my mind to be inherently despairing. Right, because it's not it's not about a better society. It's just about abject suffering, violence, blood, blood paid for by blood. You know, and it's about blood and soil, it is. It's about like who has the right to this land. You know, with yeah. not not much of a thought as to what kind of society is going to result from the struggle. 
for me, that's that's why I don't think this is like a new, you know, a new chance for a revitalized socialist left. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>